it may be that you can see me right now, and it might feel very strange that someone on a screen miles away from you is talking directly to you in real time. But it's not strange at all. It's just sad that I can't see your face. And I know that right now you probably wish you could be giving it back to me, just like I'm dishing it out, because that's how we are. (laughs) But uh, we love you. We miss you. And I'm thankful, if you're able to see this tonight, I'm thankful that that's so, because half of what we want in terms of fellowship is possible. We can project the word to you uh, this way, and I'll come see you in person as soon as possible. By the way, Mike says hi. The Apostle Paul describes the Christian life in Ephesians 4 when he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's some of the prettiest language, I think, in the New Testament in the scriptures. It's, it, it's absolutely beautiful. The way Paul says every one of us has an opportunity and a responsibility to do something that ends up being a corporate peace. We have to be diligent to preserve it, and it requires that we bear along with one another, that we overlook a lot. And that's true when you deal with me. That's true when I deal with you. That's true when we deal with one another. And it's a blessing to remember that all the people that don't need a Savior are already resurrected. That's only one, and that's Jesus. And everybody else needs constantly the grace of God. And the miracle is that we are humble enough, despite our sinfulness, to recognize that and be able to come together and fellowship with, the, with one another in this spirit of humility that God has prescribed for us. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. I'll open us with a word of prayer. Father, we we bless your name. We praise you for saving us through the cross work of your son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Something we could never earn or deserve. No matter how much we walk by your spirit, no matter how much fruit your spirit bears in us, we'll never deserve anything except the wrath that was poured out on Jesus Christ. For it will always be your grace which enables us to please you. Thank you for it. Thank you for the purpose and calling of this life. Let us walk in that manner worthy of of our calling as tonight we focus on your son and his expectations of us. Father, let us not shrink away from this high calling, but embrace it and run with abandon in, the, uh, in the, the race you've set before us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're on mission tonight. If you turn your Bibles to John chapter 20, we'll hear about the Lord Jesus' words before his ascension in John, in the Gospel of John. We've looked at <clears throat> what he did in Matthew, Luke, Acts, and now we're in John. To give you a little illustration of the, from, the, from the headlines today, put a photograph on the screen. <sighs> Lovely young lady, a junior at the uh, University of California, Berkeley. Maybe you've seen her. She's in the news. If you haven't seen her and you don't know her name, that's Isabella Chow. Anybody heard of Isabella Chow? Well, I want you to add her to your prayer list because apparently this daughter of... Cambodian and Malaysian immigrants is on mission. Apparently, she understands something of the mission to which we've been called. And there are so many things in what I just said that are just almost, they they are miraculous. A daughter of Malaysian and Cambodian immigrants is here in the United States speaking up for the Lord Jesus Christ and as a consequence, receiving national and no doubt international attention. Let me just read a quick uh, few little excerpts from an article on this young lady and what she's done and what she's encountering. A student senator at the UCAL Berkeley um, 
the University of California, Berkeley, who was kicked out of her own party is being pressured to resign or face a recall because of her religious views, says she won't back down. Um, this, is, uh, this is no big deal. This isn't, this isn't national politics. This is class student government at college. But somehow it's entering the news headlines. And I want you to see what's happening. It is so hard to uh, resist the pressure to assimilate into the culture and do, we call it peer pressure, but it's cultural assimilation, where you adopt the norms and the morals of the people around you. It is so hard to say, no, he who's in me is greater than he who is in the world, when you can only see and encounter those um, voices around you. And I don't know what she believes about almost anything, but I do know what she said. I want to sh- share some of what she said. The situation is that um, the president has said we're going to make this new executive uh, order within the, the executive branch of government, which actually ends up having a lot of sway. It's not a law. It's just executive order. We're, we're, we as a country on the executive branch are going to function in terms of two sexes and therefore two genders, the binary of God's creation. And, to, and he didn't, I don't think it's a reference to God when our president said it, but that's what, that's what we're doing. It was just saying we're just two, there's boys and girls. And then your very small percentage of what they call intersex today, they used to call hermaphroditism, is, um, is, is an exception that proves the rule that there's just the two. And so just deal with that. That's, it is what it is. And so um, this student senate had a vote to, to, to denounce the president's executive order and, um, and may basically make a political statement that then they could tell the newspapers and make a, make a big thing. And nobody would have heard about, I don't know what we've heard about this, but we heard about her because she voted, I, she voted, abs, she abstained from the vote. She said, I can't vote. So we're like, we're, why are we even talking about this? Because watch what, what she did when someone put a microphone in her face. There were 20 senators or whatever, 20 voters. Um, 18 said, you know, what the president said is wrong and hateful and homophobic. And uh, that they were just the two sexes, therefore the two genders. Um, what, what the president said was evil, and so we have to denounce it as evil. And, um, and she said, no, I'm not going to vote. She just abstained. Um, she said, uh, and, and everyone is calling her a bigot, a hater. This is the problem. I have no doubt that everyone in the room hates her with all their heart, would kill her if they could. Because Jesus said the murder in the heart is where it starts and th- th- with hatred. She says, no matter how difficult this has been, if I don't represent the Christian perspective, the minority perspective, there won't be anyone to represent these views. See, I think Berkeley made a big mistake when they said, oh, we've got a minority immigrant child woman. We can bring her in. That, that's a good get. I think they messed up and they've got to do a better job on their screening for who they allow to come to Berkeley. I'm doing this for the Christian community. I know that it was called, uh, that I was called for such a time as this. Backing down is not an option, especially when backing down means giving in to political pressure and political correctness. Interstatement Chow said, discrimination is never, ever okay and condemn Christian bullies and bigots calling the LGBTQ community valid and loved even if their views were different. Okay, so she's saying these human beings have a right to exist. I think that's her point. Not that it's right to be, because that's the problem she's saying. She's not going to say it's right to be these things. She's saying they have a right as humans to be because they're made in God's image. That said, here's the, the, the nugget that everyone's angry about. I cannot vote for this bill without compromising my values and my responsibility to the community that elected me to represent them. As a Christian, I personally do believe that certain acts and lifestyles conflict with what is good, right, and true. You understand, this is a junior in college, a business major. I wish, let me just say, I trust that had I been a junior in college dealing with this, I would have had the, articulate cap- the capability to articulate that. I wouldn't have. I, had, I was hope- would have been hopeless. This kid obviously has people. She's got people that are her support and encouragement, and that, that comes out in the article. But anyway, she says, I personally do believe that certain acts and lifestyles conflict with what is good, right, and true. I believe that God created male and female at the beginning of time and designed sex for marriage between one man and one woman. For me, to love another person does not mean that I silently concur when, at the bottom of my heart, I do not believe that your choices are right or the best for you as an individual. 
I don't know how you would better summarize Christian love towards someone who's in error from the biblical perspective than what this young lady just said. So um, she concluded by saying she affirms that each person in the room deserves respect, acknowledgement, legal protection, and love. And she asked the people to extend the same respect to her community, but was quickly met with backlash. And I won't talk about all the hatred that gets spewed by all these social justice warriors in the name of love. Because that's the argument is you're allowed to love whoever you want. Um, notice that we haven't said anything about coercion or legal, legal coercion. We've just said, I don't agree that what you're doing is good for you. And then the snowflake people fall apart and, and want to um, and scream you know, at the top of their lungs about what, what evil is before them. I just want to say that um, there are a couple of things that come out right now that you need to, we need to think about in terms of worldview. And I just, because being on the mission, this is really important. To go talk to people and to tell them about the Lord, you're going to be asked about what we think about homosexuals and all of that. And what you believe, if you're a Bible-believing person, if you're a 1 Corinthians 6 kind of person, you're going to say, um, I think it's sinful, but we're all sinners. Jesus died for our sins. That's, how you, that's the argument. And, um, and so uh, we shouldn't do those things because they're sinful, but, but we all struggle with sin. We're going to say something like that as a starting point. Now, there's a special sense of what sexual sin is. We can talk about that, but that's the, the, the talk on sin. And what you're going to be told is that you're a homophobe, that you're hateful. And I believe the first person in the conversation to start talking hate, to talk about the hate of the other, is projecting their hate on you. I mean, I think they're hating you for what you believe because there's a prior hatred. It is not an atheism. It is a hatred of God. And that is going to be very bizarre for a human being to hate God. And I'll tell you why. It's just, this is where we are as a civilization as we disintegrate. Atheism, and really it's not atheism, it's hatred of God, which is really, the, you're not going to tell me what sex I am. You're not going to tell me how I'm supposed to behave. Hatred of God is self-hatred. Not because we're God, but because the thing that makes us valuable is that God made us. So you're cutting yourself off not only from your source, but from your value, and you're, it's a self-hatred. The hatred of being a male or a female, a boy or a girl, the hatred of that is self-hatred because you are what God made you. And so what we're really showing, what we're really seeing is that sin so curves us in on ourselves and given such a rampant sway that we can have whatever we want and just libertine and the freedoms that everyone died for are now so that we can not be what God made us. This crazy thing that we're doing ends up with just self-hatred because God-hatred. And so it gets expressed at her. And I, you know, if I wanted to illustrate this, I'd say this little girl is the little, she's the little stick character here. And there's this giant God behind her and all the hatred and arrows and lashing out that she's receiving are really directed at the one who's behind her. Greater is he who's in you, though, than he who's in the world. And that kid needs to keep smiling as she keeps telling the truth. I would never have heard of a Cambodian, Malaysian immigrant business major, double major in business and music in Berkeley. I would never have heard of this person except that she said what she said. And it's so clear and so precise. And... Um, we need to keep praying for our young people because this isn't hard math. They are doing science and math and logic and reason. We have taught them in our education how to do mathematics. And, uh, and you know, one is one and zero is zero, and there's a binary situation on and off. That's what all the digital computers are. That's how we're made. We're either male or female. Of course, the men are the zeros, ladies, I know. But, um, but this isn't hard math. We just don't like God telling us how it is. And this is the final way you can shave your, shake your fist at him is to say, I'm not even, I'm not even what he made me. And um, I, am, I like what God made me, and I like what God made you, and I, I wouldn't like it otherwise. But I'm comfortable with God being God. So let's switch over to John chapter 20 and talk about Jesus' mission statement in John's gospel. I have to confess to you that my intention was to just go straight to Jesus talking to Peter, do you love me? the three times in John 21, and let that be the, the portion of that. And that's next time. We're not doing that tonight. Surprisingly, there's a passage in John 20 that I think we kind of read and we kind of let, let our mind kind of float over. 
uh, maybe a little bit. And um, um, in John 20, there is a commissioning statement that echoes what we've read in Luke. And it's exciting. So let's do, let's do the story. On Resurrection Sunday, the way it came about, in John 20, verses 1 and 2, Mary gave her report. Mary Magdalene saw that the tomb was empty and came and reported it to Peter. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone was already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who's that? John 21 at the end tells you it's John. The disciple that Jesus loved is how John talks about himself. He didn't say Peter and I. He said Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved. And that tells you there's a cultural difference because if we said that, we would, it would mean that he didn't love Peter. But that's not what it means. It means there's a tight relationship between John and the Lord Jesus that he treasures and the Holy Spirit uh, inspired him to emphasize in this epistle, in this gospel. He said to them, um, she said to, to Peter and John, they t- they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. And I thought about piecing together the resurrection story in all the different ways it's described in the gospels and show you the the sequence and um, that's your homework you go home and do that Um, tonight we're just going to deal with John and um, and there's there's a really neat way of seeing that but it's a mosaic uh, story which actually ends up being giving more credence to the reality of the resurrection events that these different perspectives are pulling out different pieces that were significant to the way they remembered and the spirit led them but in verses uh, three through 10, you have Peter and John in the race to the tomb. And this is a neat part of the story. John writes a long time after Matthew and Mark and Luke wrote. A couple, maybe 20, 40 more years after the gospel of Matthew is being circulated in Luke. And John remembers vividly some things and details that they don't come out in the other, other gospels, um, like the foot race between John and Peter. Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. They were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. So John records that he won the foot race. This isn't a couple of buddies, like, jogging along. Or it was at first, and then Peter, he's like, oh, I've got got fisherman lung or something. I don't know. And and so, and then then Peter wants to take a break, and John says, I don't want to take a break. I'm just getting my second wind. And so... He runs and gets to the tomb first and stooping and just looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in, all this little detail here. And so Simon Peter also came following him and he entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, that's John, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered and he saw and then gives you a very significant detail. He believed. John believed right there. He sees an empty tomb, sees the wrappings. I'm convinced. Now, that doesn't mean John won the the race to believe. That's not the reason that it's stated, but it is significant because later John's going to see Jesus and say, hey, that's Jesus. And everybody else is like, it is. So John, John is intimate with our Savior as a friend in a way that some of the others aren't. And so he's, he's anticipating his moves better than the others. Um, And so he he gives us a little bit of insight on this, uh, on this day of days, the resurrection Sunday. For verse 9, as yet they had not, did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. So John didn't get it till just now about the resurrection. When Mary said the tomb's empty, nothing. He sees the empty tomb. Oh, he gets it. We don't know what's going on with Peter. That's okay. That's not the point of the way John is portraying things. Verses 11, really through 18 you have Mary, gets to see two angels. She comes back to the tomb. She sees, Mary had a couple of laps to the tomb, to the disciples, back to the tomb. She sees the angels, and, and, and then she sees Jesus, who, uh, just like in Luke chapter 24, is not revealing himself even though they're seeing him. Mary sees Jesus, thinks it's the gardener. He's not. He's the vine. The father's the vine dresser. Um, he sees, that's a gospel's joke. He sees, she sees Jesus, thinks he's the gardener, and then he says, Mary. And it's like, boo. And she says, it's you. And that's, that it's the same kind of thing that the disciples on the Emmaus story had where he broke the bread and then they saw that it's him after he handed them bread at their own table. 
So Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Verse 13, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take, take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, I love it. There's no sweeter sound to your ears. I know we want it to be Jesus, but it's your own name. It's how we're made. There's nothing more delightful than when someone says your name. And when Jesus calls her name, uh, that has to be uh, just such a delight and such a shock. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, my rabbi. Rabboni, my great one, is what that means, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Now, I don't think this is something any more than uh, she's holding him because he died and now he's back. And nothing's going to let him go again because because like we want to be, like we need to be, like we are, if we'll choose to be, there's nothing that will get between us and Jesus Christ. And so her attitude about Jesus is our attitude about Jesus. And so when you see him, you grab on and you don't let go. And he says, let go, I got to go. <laughs> Hang on, I've got to, I have another appointment. It's a better appointment. I got a better gig because <laughs> I've got to go see the Father. That's, what he's, that's all he's saying. It's not like you're not clean. You're un- I've got to go up to be clean. It's not about that. It's about I just need to go and, and I have another appointment. But go ahead to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and to your father and my God and your God. Um, what jumps out at me when he says, go say to my brethren is my brethren. My brethren. <clears throat> uh, the, um, the, the ode to joy in our hymnal, joyful, joyful, we adore thee, has God our father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. And if we mean the love of God produced by the Spirit through the, the work in your heart, okay, fine. But um, if we mean all roads lead to God and just if you find love, you found God, no. It's branded. It's Christian. Um, but notice he calls them brethren. And I believe the reason is because uh, we have him, uh, his Father in common. Because his Heavenly Father is our Father. And I would be very careful about Christ our brother when you forget he's your Lord. James, the half-brother of Jesus, starts his epistle, and it was James the elder, not the apostle, but James the elder who wrote James, James a slave of Christ. That's the right attitude for the brother of Jesus. But anyway, um, notice the beauty of Jesus. as He does in John 14, I call you my friends. I tell you what I'm doing. You're my friends, not my slaves. I send to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene came. Announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So she comes with her report. So Peter, the way it's portrayed here, has only seen the empty tomb. Um, and John believes, and now Mary has a second testimony. There's an empty tomb, she says at first, and then she saw the Lord. And then in verses 19 through 23, you have what turns out to be a commission. A commissioning of uh, the disciples, like we have in... Matthew 28 and Luke 24. So it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. I think this is where the, the, the men from Emmaus come back to the upper room and then everyone's gathered. Peter's telling about how he saw Jesus and then Jesus appears to them. I think that's the same occasion on that day. This is all Resurrection Sunday. It was a busy day. On that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. And then you have the story of Thomas, uh, the Apostle Thomas, who legend says went to India. Thomas, who in in the Bible, wouldn't believe unless he touched the scars of the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't believe that he was risen unless he had physical proof that it indeed was the same person who died that we all saw on the cross. And I'll summarize that. Um, My Lord and my God is what Thomas says when Jesus appears to him in verse 28. And Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. And then John gives us the reason for all the signs that, that he organized his gospel around. 
Now, I can't say it's the whole summary of the book because John chapters 13 through 17 are not written for unbelievers. It's not a gospel tract for unbelievers. John chapters 13 through 17 is affectionately referred to as the upper room discourse. Now, we all know that the upper room discourse is John chapters 13 through 17, and the reason we emphasize it is because it's the last teaching of Jesus for his disciples before he would be crucified, and it is his instruction on what to anticipate in the next arrangement when the Holy Spirit comes and they become the apostles who are going to found the church. It is the beginning of church age doctrine, in other words, in the teaching ministry of Jesus. And, um, and it is at least that. And therefore, it is the prologue for the church age epistles. Because, see, Jesus says it before the Holy Spirit comes, but it's all a prophecy of what is going to happen when the Holy Spirit comes, which is what we're encountering today under the apostles. And so you have the reason for the signs, though, in John 20, 30, and 31. Therefore, many other signs. So you can also trace the signs, the miracles of Jesus as John presents them. Um, you, you can track that as an outline for his gospel, except for that teaching event. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. The Gospel of John is written to evangelize, for sure, but it also trains us who are believers in what we are to be about in this age. So I don't, want, I don't take a simplistic view of the, the Gospel of John. John, I think, is the most complex writer of the New Testament. I think, he's, I think Paul is much easier to understand in some ways than John because Paul writes a linear argument. Now, some of his argument is, is challenging, as Peter tells in 2 Peter 3, but, um, but John is not writing linear argument generally. He's, he's hitting you with the same topic several times, and he makes several rounds around the same thing. Uh, and, and, and there are different things that he talks about, but he hits them multiple times. And um, we've been through First John, and, and you can see some of the complexity there. But anyway, I really uh, love the Gospel of John, and I want to focus in on what Jesus does in verse 21, the commissioning in John 20. He says, therefore, Jesus said to them again, peace be unto you, Irene humin. Irene is the name in English where we get the, from the Greek word peace, Irene. Irene just means peace. It's a Greek word. Peace be unto you, just as the Father has sent me, kathos, and then the word for sent is apostello, um, where we get the word apostle. Okay, it's right here. Just as the Father has in the past with continuing results sent me, so also I am pempo, I am sending you. Another word for send, P-E-M-P-O. So you have apostello and pempo and they're synonyms. They probably are interchangeable the way they're used in the New Testament. And I looked them up and um, uh, I think uh, some of our study tonight will focus on that. What I want to point out in this though is that there is... There is, in what Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, so also I'm sending you. There's a chain, what I'm calling a chain of ministry that Jesus establishes that begins with God the Father. You can't really read John without being Trinitarian. Um, that's one of the great, maybe the most powerful reason we're Trinitarian is the Gospel of John. There, it's all through the Scriptures, but I think it's in Genesis 1, personally. But... Um, Jesus can't be the God in John 1, 1 and still have the Father as a separate person unless we have this one God in three persons. The, the, the doctrine of Trinity is required by what John teaches, but he says that the Father sent me. And so the ministry, the mission begins with the Father. And when you say send, we're talking about the mission. That's what we're talking about. The mission. So the Father has sent the Son. And that implies a father-son relationship. Has your father ever sent you anywhere? Sure. Yeah, that's how it works. An authority sends someone under authority to do a task. And that is not to say Jesus is lower in essence than God the Father. It's to say he has a different function. Much like husbands and wives are equal in their value, even in their essence, and yet not equal in their responsibility or identical in their responsibilities. And so you see the economic trinity, we call it, in the Father sending the Son. But this is the beautiful thing about ministry. When you're told 
Christians, you should be in service, you should be in ministry, you should be doing the works of God. Look at this. You have been invited as a believer in Jesus Christ to participate in the things that God has been doing from eternity past through his son. There's no greater promotion or calling than that. It's awesome, but it's what ministry is. This is what Christian ministry is. And I'm not talking about clergy, as they tragically call us. I'm not talking about people that make their living in the teaching of the word or in the ministry of the gospel, which the, Paul says that's a righteous thing, which is how you want to do if you can. We can. I'm not talking about the pastor or the deacons or the church floor sweeper. Sometimes that's the pastor. Some of you are like, not very often, and when, when I see a need and I can meet it, I do. But we're talking about the life that God's called you to as a Christian. How can I apply this chain of ministry to you? How can I say dogmatically that if it's true for Jesus to the apostles in John 20, 21, that it's true for you? Because of what he's going to do next. You don't have the Holy Spirit as a token or commemoration of the coming of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit in you because God wants to do something through you. He has a mission for you. And that's why in, John, in Luke 24, the Holy Spirit, that's why in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit, that's why in Acts 2, the church received the Holy Spirit because the church has a mission. So the apostles aren't just special people. They're the founders and the beginners of this project that Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. So this is your chain of ministry. There's another thing I want to point out about this. Um, did you ever see... Um, you ever see your young people, you ever see your dad get with his father or father-in-law when there wasn't something for them to do? Think about this. Think all of you. Think you know, when you're younger and your parents get together for Christmas, Thanksgiving, whatever. It's a holiday time. The, a lot of times what the men will do, especially when you've got the multi-generational thing, a, young, a wise younger man will say, oh, we've got some wisdom Pop knows how to put a door square, so I'm going to get him to help me a little bit. Um, a lot of times what will happen on these days, with, you know, especially if we're not uh, worried about football too much, is these men will, will visit a little bit, they'll eat some, and then they're doing something. They get a project going. They get, they get to working on something. There's a reason for this. It's so that they won't have to talk to each other. Um, no, that's, that's, just, that's a joke. But um, men do things together. Because that's how we're made. We really do. And we like to do things together. And sometimes we do like to talk. But back me up, guys. Sometimes we don't really need to talk. But we would like to make something of the day. So you get a couple of guys together. You could move a couple quarter of firewood pretty quick. You get a couple of guys together. We could straighten that door out that's crooked that's uh, that won't close anymore because the house is settled and needs to be rehung we could do some of these kinds of things and pretty easy especially because now we've got to get tools out and it's fun to show off your new sawzall you know oh you got the 24 volt sawzall i didn't know they made them yeah they did no i had to order it special and they re they had to manufacture this to my specifications because they didn't make 24 volt yet you know i mean that's silly but i'm just saying we um we want to get something done and i think this is a reflection of the Father and the Son. Let me, tell, let me tell you what I'm talking about. The Son says that the Father has sent me to this mission, and I'm sending you on this mission. Um, when in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, you love me, you keep my commandments. And therefore, you'll abide in my love. And those who abide in my love, the Father and I will make our abode in him. That's fellowship. God, the Father, and God, the Son will have fellowship with you and make their abode in a special fellowship sense in you. It's not talking about all believers. It's talking about you when you're obedient. When I'm humble to, toward God and I obey him, that's fellowship time. And there's an abode. There's a presence. There's a, a, a fellowship that God has. Um, I don't think fellowship happens without the mission. I don't think we can disobey his command to go be about his business 
and expect to be enjoying fellowship with him. And this has been said by plainer speaking folk, plainer speaking pastors, that if you don't go evangelize or witness, then you can't be right with God. I'll say it this way. The fellowship offered is to be participating in the things God wants for us to be about. And the mission is your privilege. But um, we have to choose it. We have to say, yes, God, whatever you want with me, whatever you'd have for me, that's what I want. And I'll show you that attitude in Jesus when we look at this, um, summarizing John a little bit. If you look at the Father's mission, especially in the Gospel of John, I think it may be the major theme of the Gospel of John. If you had to pick one theme besides believe, um, believe and live is one of the themes of John. But um, there's a mission that's established in the Gospel of John. And there's two words you could look up in your concordance. And they both occur in John 20, 21. One is to send apostello, and the other is to send pempo. And I have to say, I'm glad that we call them apostles and not pimples. <laughs> or pimps. Um, neither of those would be a good... Um, it's like Amerigo Vespucci discovered or was part of the discovery for this continent, so we called it America. Glad we went with the first name. Vespucciana or something would have really... Wouldn't have had that crisp America kind of ring to it. Anyway, um, Pempo to send, uh, Apostello to send. Um, When we look at this in John, it ends up being a major category, a major theme. This is the chapters of John and the uses of these two words whenever they occur, one or the other. It's a big deal in the Gospel of John. That's why when you've read John, this theme has kept kind of cropping up. John just keeps recirculating this idea and I think, I haven't studied this for sure. I, can, I mean, I, I don't know the specific detail, but it may be that this is the way Jesus refers to God the Father throughout John. I don't know if he says it a different way. My Father who sent me, him who sent me, him who sent me, the one who sent me. And he uses the verb as a participle to describe the Father. In other words, you could call God the Father the sender in the Gospel of John. 61 times, you're looking at 61 uses in that little bar chart. So like... For example, in John chapter 5, he says one of these two words seven times, and also in John 17. Now, since we haven't studied the Gospel of John together uh, in great detail, but we have looked in detail at the prayer in John 17, um, what's going on with the words for sending in John 17? He's praying for his disciples and those that will believe in him through their word, and he's talking about the Father having sent him and their witness being proof that to the world that the Father sent the Son. And he's, he's on mission, the thing you sent me to do. That's John 17. There's, that's why it's so frequent. And so this is uh, something that I took a little bit of time and looked at every one of these um, in John, and I came up with some categories. So that, you know, do, I did the work that Americans aren't willing to do, so you can, you and I can look at some of these um, Results. There are four basic categories that you can say about these different uses of the word in John that I think capture what you and I need to think about this commissioning when Jesus says, what the Father sent me to do, I'm sending you to do. You know, remember greater works than these you'll do? Remember that? It's the same thing. It's the work that Jesus came to do. There's a sense in which we take it on. So the first thing is you find an attitude. An attitude for the mission. And um, it's interesting, Jesus is one of those kind of leaders that says, so this is what I did, do that. I'll set you up to do what I did, and you just copy me. He's not the kind of person, he's not that middle manager that shows up at your cubicle with his coffee cup and says, hey, I'm going to need you to come in on Saturday, I'll be out playing golf. He says, here's what I did, join in this work with me, and you do, you copy me. And Peter caught it. You can read about it in 1 Peter chapter 2 at the end. Jesus is our example, and we walk in his footsteps according to his example. And the attitude of the Lord Jesus is a beautiful thing, as you might imagine. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's John 4.34. What I want to do, what I want to live on, my whole life sustenance, is to do the will of the Father who sent me. It's the substitution of wills. 
I'm a person with my own preferences. God the Father is a person with his preferences. So what I need to do is like disregard my preferences and ask what are yours and say, help me want that. That's the attitude that Jesus shows again and again in these sent statements. In John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm making righteous judgments. Boy, do we Christians who are sometimes called to make judgments, do we need to adopt that attitude? I'm not judging of myself. This is what God's word says, and I'm beholden to it. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 29, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 8, 29 models John 14, 21 and 23. You, you abide in my love by keeping my commandments. That's a loving response to Jesus and his grace that obeys what he said. And the promise is we will make our abode with you. Right here, he says, the Father doesn't leave me alone. He stays with me because I do the things that are pleasing to him. Fellowship with God depends on our obedience. People are struggling with that. I I hear that. You're talking about obedience, and I want to hear about grace. Friends, the grace of God enables you to obey him. That's the work of the Spirit in your heart. That's what we're talking about when the Word of God becomes your focus and the Spirit of God uses it to fill you with the character of Christ. That's the Christian spiritual life. So yes, we begin with an attitude of thanksgiving, of gratefulness. I'm not going to say the rhyme. An attitude of gratefulness. And then we're going to respond to God from that gratitude in obedience, in loving and faith, faith having, trusting in God, obedience. And so it is your privilege to do that, and that's, we just have to change the way we think about life and ourselves and God, because somewhere along the line, we bought a lie. We, we do. We swallow this lie from Satan that what God wants from me isn't good, that when God says no, then that's holding me back from something I want. Well, Jesus was sent not to do his own will, but to do the Father's will. That's the big picture of his attitude in terms of his sending. Are you content with that? Do you like the idea that God gets to call the shots, that you need to humble yourself before him, and that therefore, just like Jesus, you'll be about God's business? If the creator of the universe, the, the, one, the executive creator, the builder, the one who actually holds all things together by the word of his power, if he can submit to God the Father and enter the human flesh to die in our place and fulfill the Father's will, then you and I certainly can too. And that makes us walking in love as beloved children, imitating our Father. The second category I would say you get out of, um, out of this uh, picture is the message. A message, and what I mean is, Jesus came with a message that was authenticated by his miracles, but it's a message. He's the word from God. He's the word of God. He's the, God, the expression of the self-revelation of God. And the reason he healed was not because he was on a project to heal all the sick. It was because his message of himself would save everyone for eternity. And the great healing event is the resurrection body. And so he does these works that authenticate this message. And so you can talk about the origin of Jesus' message. In John 3.34, now this is God the Son who knows all the knowable. He is omniscient, omnipresent in his deity. And yet, in John 3.34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. He's saying, the words that I have, I got from my Father. And this is one of the things that has always jumped out at me about the, the Gospel of John. In John five twenty four, he who sent me has eternal life, and uh, the, one who believes in him, the one who sent me has eternal life and doesn't come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. This is the message of eternal life from the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's the message of the Father. It's the Father communicating through the Son, and so Jesus is not coming of his own initiative or speaking his own message. Let me read that whole verse. You got clipped here. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes the Father, the one who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. This is Jesus, you know, in the, in the role of a prophet saying, I have a message from God, and it's not of myself, it's from the Father. And so sometimes we think, well, does that diminish his deity, that it's not his message, that it's the Father? No, it demonstrates, it, it, it highlights that you have different roles within the, the Godhead, different functions for different persons. 
in John chapter 7 and verse 16. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. Did you ever read that and kind of say, huh? What shocks me is how many times he says this. There's a whole lot of these in John on this list here. If anyone is willing to, uh, willing to do his will, that's the Father, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks for himself speaks, seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. So he's saying, you know, that this, that this message that he has is, is part of that attitude, submission to the Father. Grateful, glad to do the will of the Father. And so that's the attitude that comes through and therefore he's fit to carry forth the message. I want to be fit to carry the message that God has for me to carry. I want to be part of this project, and so I have to have that attitude, but then I need to recognize it's not about my ideas, really. It's about his. If Jesus can say it's not my message, then I need to be able to say that for a much stronger reason. In John eight twenty six, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Remember that in John chapter 14 when Jesus is teaching about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, John chapter 16. He's teaching about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says that when he comes, he will bring into your memory the things that you've forgotten. And he says um, he'll lead you into all truth. And he says um, that um, he won't speak from himself, but that which he hears, that's what he'll say. I think that's the same thing. It doesn't mean that the pastor says it and then the Holy Spirit hears it and teaches it to you. (laughs) That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the Spirit takes the things of the Father and, and communicates them through the apostles. And it's just like Jesus. In other words, the Spirit takes on the mission that Jesus was conducting here, like in John eight twenty six. Uh, John twelve forty nine. It's a neat statement of this mission and the sending and the message. In John twelve forty nine. For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. So the gospel is really the mission of the Father. He's the, he's the commander, if you will, that's, that's issuing this, um, this directive. And the attitude of the Son is whatever you want me to do, that's what I'll do. The last one, John fourteen twenty four, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Right after saying, if you keep my commands and abide in my love, the Father and I will abide in you in a special sense. John 14, 23. So there's a message from the Father, not from Christ, if you will. And so um, this is, again, the, the, I think the main basis for why we talk about the economic trinity, the different roles in the Godhead. There's also an authority. Guess who is going to say, guess who Jesus will say the authority of the mission is? Not him. If it's not my message and I didn't sin myself, then what's going on? Now, be careful about this. Paul says that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. See, there's more than one thing happening when Jesus submits to the Father and loves the Father and therefore obeys the Father and dies for my sins. He's also loving me. And so let's don't say one or the other when the Bible says both. But the authority in John five twenty two and 23 Let's see if I can find it. We won't go through all these, but in 522, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So there is an authority that's delegated, but notice Jesus says, I get my authority from the delegation from, from higher. That's what I'm trying to show. There's a source of this authority, and Jesus firmly plants it on the higher command, the one above him. John 7, 28. You don't know me and know where I'm from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you don't know. I've probably given you about half of the verses on this topic the purpose 
The purpose in John 3.17 will suffice. It's the gospel. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The mission that Jesus Christ was on, that he committed to us, was the gospel. Not to judge the world, but to save the world. This is the Father's intention. This is his initiative. This is what he's sending the Son to do. And yet, after saying, peace be to you, just as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. After the saying this, he exhaled on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's that little section in John 20 that I always said, what's, what's going on there? I know about Acts 2. I mean, I know about Acts 1 and the prophecy of Acts 2. I know about Luke 24 and that you're going to stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit and then Jesus ascends. And then I read this and he hasn't ascended yet and it says this. And I've, um, I've always wondered about this. Of course, I let my eyes slip casually down to the bottom of my Ryrie study Bible and There the footnote says, well, this is a provisional temporary empowerment of the Spirit until the day of Pentecost when they will receive the full ministry. And that may be what's happening here. But given the mission that you've seen the whole Gospel of John presenting, and I've tried to kind of summarize John that way, given that the Father has sent this mission and now he's committed it to the Son and the Son has the right and privilege to give it to us, and to continue this same project that God has been working on from eternity past. And therefore, we are entering into fellowship with our Father in this project that he invites us to work in. I mean, think about the beauty of what we're saying. Given that this is so, um, I think what we see here is a, a kind of, a, of, a, of an object lesson like Jesus did in John 13 where he washed the disciples' feet. In other words, I don't think we need to have pictures next to the communion table, next to the baptismal, where we have three ordinances and we wash the disciples' feet because Jesus said wash their feet. I think he's saying by that illustration that we need to do what's necessary to serve one another and we need the cleansing that Jesus offers when we sin. There's two things being taught in that. And I think here he's saying that the Father sent me and now I'm sending you. And I'm going to give you the power, the capability. I'm going to pass on the means by which you'll accomplish the mission just as I received it. Now, I want to watch this. This is the creator of the universe now entering into the flesh that he created. God made man from the dust of the ground. And the first Adam, he breathed the neshama into his nostrils. He became a living soul in Genesis 2-7. That God, Yahweh, who made the man is now in the flesh as the last Adam breathing on the disciples depicting the third person of the Trinity coming to them. In other words, he's already told them, when I go, you'll receive the Spirit. In John 7, they could not receive the Spirit because the Lord had not yet been glorified. He still hasn't been exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. I think what you're seeing is Jesus showing them that he's sending the, the Spirit. And they are going to receive the Holy Spirit. And when they do, they better know it's from him. The third person comes to them in Acts chapter 2. And I believe that's the picture that you're receiving here. There's a mission, and you're going to need the power to do it. Now look at this. Just as the Father, verse 21, has sent me, so I'm also sending you, receive the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what we have in Luke 24. That's exactly what we have in Acts 1.8. I, I think that's a clearer statement. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. This is what the Great Commission requires. We have to have the power to do the work. And I believe Jesus in his humanity, as we talked about last week, did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. And some say, well, it has to be in his deity, proving his deity. Well, when he says it's the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit working in his humanity. And so this is, this is the, the idea of the pass on. There's another thing. Um, Elisha wanted a double portion of the spirit that Elijah had, right? He wanted the, the power, the capability, the, the spirit of Elijah. And that's a mysterious thing to us because we're like, well, do you mean the Holy Spirit who empowered Elijah? What, in a special Old Testament, you know, endowment, is that what's going on? And Elijah says, really hard. It's a really hard thing. I don't think, I don't think it's going to be possible. I'll tell you what. If you see me... 
ascend. If you see me at the last, before I die or before I go, if you're there, then you can get that spirit. And I think that's Elijah saying, you better stay around <laughs> until, until it is time to pass the stole. And he does. The, the, he gets the spirit that Elijah had, and he receives the garment that demonstrates his prophecy as a prophet. But anyway, um, there's a passing on of the, of the baton here. And this is the Great Commission. It's the same thing, that you're going to have work to do. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. So receive the Holy Spirit. First of all, I want to say this is a mysterious act of Jesus. It was a portrayal of what was to come at Pentecost. I think that's what's going on with the exhaling on them and saying, receive the Spirit. In other words, I don't think the Holy Spirit inhabits Jesus' lungs in a, like a mystical inhab- inhabiting of the natural air. And then when they felt the air, that they, they got the Holy Spirit. I don't think that, the, that your Spirit is your breath either. I don't think your human spirit is your breath. But I think your human spirit is within your physical body when your physical body is breathing. And when it stops breathing and stops being able to house the immaterial part of you, that's where there's a separation. We call that physical death. But I don't think your breath is your spirit. Hachoo! You know, gazuntai. Oh no, put his spirit back in. See, we're not, that, we're not superstitious about this. We don't believe that the spirit is physical. It's spiritual. Second, in Jesus thinking, the gift of the Holy Spirit is definitely connected with his mission. That's why he says, you've got work to do, so receive the Holy Spirit. Third, the mission is from Christ to the apostles, and I believe to us as a consequence because of the prayer of the upper room discourse in John 17, and because of Jesus' command to make disciples who make disciples. Fourth, but the mission originated with the Father to Christ. All, All summary of what we've said. What, my question for you, are the implications then for Christian spirituality? I mean, if we're talking about the, the beginning of the message about receiving the Holy Spirit, right? This is before, before the church got the Spirit that defines us as an, as an entity. We, we have the Holy Spirit because God wants us uh, to be part of his body, and that's the baptism of the Spirit. But wait a second, what does this say about the walk by the Spirit, about the spiritual life? See, when the message is, kids, you're going to go through some tough things in life. You're going to have problems with people. You're going to have problems with finances. You're going to have problems with systems of authority where human fallen people are going to mess it up. And you're going to have to be a good Christian anyway. When we present that as what the spiritual life is about, and we don't say, there's a mission for you to be on that is under direct opposition of Satan and his fallen angels in a war committed against this mission. When we just say, well, you're going to have troubles and trials in life and you just need to trust in the Lord and rely on the Spirit and receive the benefits of spiritual power. And all, when, we, when we frame it in terms of the life that, you know, the good life. And in the good life, there are hard things. I think we miss the riches of what the spiritual life is all about. The reason for the Holy Spirit in the Christian is because the Christian has work to do. The work that we have to do isn't something for us to guess at. It's to make disciples. That's the Great Commission. That's why you have the Holy Spirit. That's what I mean when I say what are the implications for Christian spirituality. How does this idea of fellowship with God relate to this mission? Fellowship with God. How does that relate to the mission? Remember what I said? The Son and the, the Father sent the Son, and there's a perfect rapport of fellowship between the two. And they're on this eternal project together like a father and son would be. What does that look like for your fellowship with God? See, to, to say I'm, I'm brought in, uproom discourse, I'm brought into that in, intra-Trinitarian fellowship between father and son and that having the things of God in common. If you're not, if you don't see yourself as a functionary in the work that the father and son are doing, See, you missed the point in part of fellowship, I think. And so I want to tie these things together since John seems to. A more difficult verse is verse 22, or sorry, verse 23. If anyone you forgive the sins, they've been forgiven them. That's the literal Greek. And if anyone you retain the sins, they have been retained. Now we're out of time. Let's pray. Uh, What does this mean? 
What does this mean, you apostles? If you forgive sins, you retain sins. Sounds a lot like Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Sounds a lot like if you, uh, you, were the, you, you were Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. And I think the rock is the rock and Peter's a little rock. And, um, but the point of however you come up with that is Peter's given authority. And his authority is to bind and to loose. And he says, that which you bind will have already been bound in heaven. That which you loose will have already been loosed in heaven. And the idea is the judgments of God in the oracles and information of God, that spiritual information that God alone has, has been reposed in you in a special way for your dealings in the coming church. And so you have a special authority. I believe that's what's being done with the keys to the kingdom. And, um, and, and that's a really challenging section of Scripture. But let me, let me propose um, six ideas about apostolic authority based on what Jesus does there and in the Matthew passages. First of all, forgiveness of sins comes through the work of Christ alone. You can't just say, well, Jesus made me an apostle. You're forgiven. Yeah. No. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. Well, God's arbitrary in his selection, so I get to be arbitrary. I'm going to love like God loves. See, that's, I don't think that's how it works anyway. <laughs> but forgiveness of sins comes through the work of Christ alone. So what do these apostles have to do with that in terms of forgiveness of sins? That's, to me, the way you work through what's going on. The way the apostles relate to the work is the message of reconciliation that was committed to them by the Lord. Remember, the mission is a message. The mission is to make disciples who first believe in Christ, they're baptized, and then you teach them to keep all that Jesus commanded. And so the, the message that the apostles carry. Now, what do we mean by the message of the apostles? How are, we gonna, how are you and I going to get hold of the message of the apostles now? I mean, can, can we still do this? Is the Christian project still possible? I know. We'll invent a system of continuation of apostles. That way we're always sure that, that it's relevant. And they can say stuff that um, can't really square with Scripture. No, let's don't do that. You know what? Let's keep our New Testament close. The apostles are the writers of the New Testament. And that's where we get their message, and they got it from God. That's the point. That's why the New Testament. So the way we, this relates in terms of forgiveness and this work of the, of the gospel mission is the authority they carried with their message as an authoritative message. So third, therefore, in their proclamation of the good news of Christ's substitutionary death and resurrection— these apostles will participate in forgiving what was already forgiven in heaven. In other words, they're going to communicate this message and they're going to say when someone believes your sins are forgiven because they have it on authority from Christ. They're not God like Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, son. They're coming with the message of God about the gospel, which is the basis for the forgiveness of sins. You with me on this as a po- apostolic authority? Fourth, therefore, this statement is a heavy responsibility on the apostles to communicate the Lord's saving message. That's how you forgive people. You don't, in other words. These sinners, boy, we're talking about Peter. We haven't yet restored him three times publicly in, Acts, in, in John 21 yet. But yet he's being told you get to forgive sins. This doesn't make them uh, holier than anyone. It just gives them the responsibility to carry this message of reconciliation. Fifth, it also places a responsibility on us to pay attention to the apostles. We better pay attention to what they're saying because in them is fellowship with God and nowhere else. I got it from 1 John chapter 3. If you want fellowship with Jesus Christ, then you better get with John and the apostles. He says, our fellowship was with God, and we write these things so that your fellowship may be with us. Christianity is apostolic. It is branded, and John 20, 23 is one example of what I mean by that. That these men were special, given a special authority, and they still wield it, as it were, through what they wrote. Bottom line, I'm trying to say, is only those who believe the apostles' message would be forgiven their sins. Only those that believe. And see, that's, that's, that's what he's talking about. And you know what? It's not a popular message. That is bigoted and exclusivist. Right? That's the way the world looks at it. That's a hateful message to say that only this way and no other way. But see, this isn't true to me. This is your truth. It's not my truth. I'm going to borrow a line from Jesus. It's not my truth either. It's not my message. I... I, you don't want to know what I think without God's grace. It's, it's useless. It's probably something about coffee or fixing crooked doors or something. 
My ideas are worthless compared to the riches of God's grace and what he thinks. And so, um, no, it's God's truth, and that's our goal is to get hold of that. Now, when you do that and you do what I do, which is to basically study the scriptures and then hide behind it and say, I'm sorry, this is just what it says, you find yourself um, needing to lift the shield of faith against Satan and his attacks because it is that the world hates God. It isn't necessarily about you. It is about God, but we have to be careful not to assimilate. In summary, the mission is a major theme of John's gospel, and I think it might be the major theme. Second, John's account of Jesus' great commission emphasizes two things. The transmission of the Father's mission to the apostles and their reception of the Holy Spirit to equip them for that mission. And that is still going on today. You're not an apostle, but you're part of the mission. And last, while we're not apostles... We find ourselves in this mission as well, empowered by the Holy Spirit for mission work. Now, we looked in the question box tonight, and the question box was empty. So nobody had asked any questions that I can't respond to, but I do like to entertain questions. If you have any questions ever, if you'd like to ask questions and have discussion, we could do that. One of my favorite teachers ever is Charlie Clough, and in his framework lessons, they'll break, they'll pray, and then they'll do questions after, after the people that need to get home get home. Let's do that sometime. If you have any questions, I'll be, be glad to entertain if, uh, any thoughts you might have uh, for a few minutes anyway after we pray. Let's, let's bow in prayer. Father, we praise you and thank you for eternal life, for fellowship with you, and especially for the privilege of being part of your mission. Father, it is fearful to us. Uh, we're fearful of this mission because it means that we have to deal with an enemy we don't want to face in a, in a, in a, a situation where we're walking by faith and not by sight. And we don't want to, uh, to let go of the rails. Help us to just trust you. Put ourselves in your hands. Recognize that's where we are anyway. And to indeed, with boldness, proclaim your son. Let us be witnesses. Provide some opportunities. Open some doors for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.